In the second year of reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honour. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realise that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, the men, and, the men was, uh, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he may interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the, from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises others up. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belthazar, 
Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, who will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things, things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future, the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honour and ordered that the offering and incest be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, 
and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished him many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, chief ministers of the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, as your son, our Lord, who taught us to pray, may your kingdom come, may this rock grow into a mountain, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As, as followers of Jesus Christ, may this prayer never be far from our lips. And we pray this in the name of our true and better King, our humble King, uh, our Messiah, Jesus Christ. Amen. I love how the story starts in Daniel chapter 2, uh, verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. And so, classically, if the king can't sleep, neither can anyone else. Such is the nature of despots. So verse 2, he summons, in the middle of the night, I presume, the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers, the sort of, sort of academics of the day, to tell him what he had dreamed. So here it is. If the king is up, so is everyone else. Such is the nature of human power. Welcome to the book of Daniel. Welcome to the human condition. It's often said, it's an axiom, power corrupts, and that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And Daniel 2 seems to be making that exact point. Look at verse 5. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I firmly decided. If you don't tell me what my dream was in the first place and then interpret it, then I'll have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. This is a classic despot that exists in the world today. And yet while Daniel 2 seems to make the point, I think it makes the point that power corrupts, I think that's absolutely true, I'm not sure that the axiom is also true that absolute power corrupts absolutely. I get what the point is, the more power we give to one person, the more likely it is to corrupt them. But I wonder if it's true in the sense that Nebuchadnezzar and no other despot, dictator or king actually has absolute power. What happens if absolute power, rather than corrupting, what happens if ultimate power causes a deep and abiding humility and grace and care? What if there's a good God who is the only one who has absolute power? Maybe the axiom can't be fully true if the ultimate absolute king is divine, and I mean that in both senses of the word. I want to make a case for that this evening. Jesus' first recorded words in the Synoptic Gospels are equally striking. Repent, Jesus said, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And no doubt he had these sorts of words in his mind when he said it. And then he showed by his life uh, that it didn't mean the death of others. Uh, it meant the death of himself. It meant the death of the king himself. It meant self-sacrifice. It meant, if I can put it this way, he gets cut into pieces not the subjects. His house gets turned into a pile of rubble. What happens if the absolute king, Jesus Christ, is divine, both beautiful and God? 
Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So lots of goodness to think about today. There's three points to make and that uh, is in your outline on page um, 13. Uh, You'll notice I've got um, a picture of the ancient city of Babylon on page 14 with a word from Jeremiah, don't fear the king of Babylon because God's got you in his mind. But the outline is on page 13. I'm going to talk about the truth about power and then the future of power and then uh, in Christ to talk about how to speak truth to power. A recap, first of all, where are we? We're in Babylon, which is code in the Bible for a hostile world where those who believe don't feel at home, we feel unaligned. Psalm 137, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a strange land? That's us here in Sydney, a a sort of Babylon, if you like. When are we? Well, we're here now, but Daniel was set uh, six centuries before Jesus Christ. How do we live here in Babylon? Well, that's what the series is all about. Um, I made the point last week that you are very much like Daniel and his three friends, um, educated, um, agile of mind, uh, qualified to serve in government, art, business, medicine, education. You're amazing on Mondays. You are. So how do you do Mondays in Babylon, Mondays in Sydney? How do you sing the songs of the Lord in a strange land? Well, Daniel and his friends will outlive, outlast, outplay Babylon, ultimate survivor, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Darius all get voted off the island. That's the theme in chapter 1, verse 21. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. He was dragged there against his will as a teenager returned in his 70s. The end of chapter 2 ends with Daniel, verse 48, ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed in charge of all its wise men. You see a theme? They just remain standing. I love what the reformer Hugh Latimer said. He said, The drop of rain maketh a hole in the stone, not by violence, but by oft falling, just by staying in the same place. Stay in the game. Remain standing. Die believing. Don't get bumped off the course. Jesus said, The one who stands firm till the end will be saved. So what about the truth about power? Lots to say. There's a few things to say from Daniel. Daniel, I think the whole book of Daniel stunningly describes human power, unchecked human power. And we discover, firstly, that human power keeps everyone on their toes in a bad way. King's having dreams, so everyone in the palace is up. Verses 2 and 3. Aren't bullies like this? They demand attention, threaten you when you ignore them, and they end up making you revolve around them. Domestic violence is the same, and it is evil. Human power, left unchecked, is also potentially paranoid. The astrologers say, tell us your dream and we'll interpret it, which is not unreasonable in verse 4. Of course, they're going to do the classic thing, If you're falling, that means fear. If your teeth fall out, that means you're anxious. The king suspects he'll get dribble. So he says in verse 8, I'm certain you're trying to gain time. You realise what I firmly decided. You've got to tell me the dream. If you don't, uh, then there'll be one penalty for me. Because you conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. There's a sort of paranoia in his voice. He's afraid, if I can put it this way, he'll be toppled. 
you know, he's worried about his dream. And lastly, human power will, left unchecked, use the power that they've gained in other forms as leverage, leverage against lesser people they perceive to be lesser in their court. So verse 6, tell me the dream, I'll shower you with gifts and rewards, but if you don't tell me the dream, I'll cut you into pieces and turn your houses into piles of rubble. So everyone is afraid, everyone is up, everyone is dancing, and it's midnight. Of course, it often ends in violence, uh, which is what happens here. Verse 12, the king's so angry, so furious, that he ordered right there and then the execution of all the sort of academia, uh, sort of, of Babylon... Uh, you know, Idi Amin did this in Uganda in the 70s. Pol Pot um, happens today. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. Lest you've been sleeping last week, Daniel, of course, is one of the wise men, so men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Some of you have had first-hand experience of, uh, with despots and dictators, more in the morning service than the evening. I met a guy who uh, was here in the 6pm service that could show you the marks of despotic powers on his body. Uh, but the truth is we've all experienced this sort of thing in some sort of way because all human leadership, unchecked, will be touched by such evil, such as the human heart, and then potentially on the spectrum towards Nebuchadnezzar. And it's why, of course, we have the rule of law, the separation of powers, free and fair elections, boards, board training, compliance, not because we're good, not because we are civilised, but rather because we know deep down that without these checks and balances, the power corrupts. And the more power you give to one person, the more it will corrupt their soul. But the astrologers say something interesting in verse 11. Thank you, David Ford. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal the dream or the interpretation to the king except the gods. And they don't live among human beings. Wow. What would happen if the gods, God, lived among humans? We'll get to Jesus in a second. So there's the truth about power. Secondly, the future of power. What happens next? Verse 14 Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, he's gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon. A king can only rule with minions behind him doing his business, but I think Arioch is in pain about this. I think most, a lot of people would be as they go about the business of the one they're afraid of. But when he came to Daniel, Daniel, we're told, spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Underline those two words. And he asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? What a spectacular question. Non-anxiously offered. Arioch then explained the matter to, the, to Daniel. Like Arioch's just sent to lob heads off, but um, Daniel thinks to ask, and uh, Arioch tells him why. And at this, Daniel went in to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Just give me some time. Put the sword away for a second. Daniel then goes home. He prays to God, urges his friends to do the same. He receives the, um, the dream and the interpretation 
and then says in verse 21, Praise the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. We sing this every Sunday. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things, things hidden in the mind, the twisted mind of a despot. He knows what lies in darkness. Hmm? What is Nebuchadnezzar's troubled mind but darkness? And light dwells in him. God reveals the dream and the interpretation. Verse 24, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, don't execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Take me to your leader. And he goes in, and he says to the king, truth to power. Verse 31, here's the dream. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, enormous, dazzling, awesome in appearance. You can see Nebuchadnezzar thinking, maybe that's me. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. But while you were watching this magnificent spectacle, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. Struck the statue at the feet of iron and clay and smashed them. <laughs> then, the, you know, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in summer and the wind swept them away without leaving a trace. Such is human kingdoms arrayed against God and their future. All human kingdoms. But the rock, the little rock, that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. So you've got a statue with four metals, gold, silver, bronze, legs of iron and feet of clay. That's where it comes from. This, of course, is the future of power. It looks good now, but it just requires something little to hit its base, and it's all over Red Rover. The four medals correspond to the four beasts in Daniel 7. We'll get to that in a little, little while. But you'll see on page 14 that stunning outline of the book of Daniel uh, and the way it's been clearly and carefully structured uh, by the author. Perfectly ordered in an A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A structure. Same story, C, same story, D, same story. Cast your mind over that little diagram there. Basically, chapter 2 and 7 are the same. Uh, a dream about God's kingdom in the mind of a... In, uh, with four medals and four beasts. And then Daniel chapter 3 and 6 are two people who stand up for the dream. They don't bow down. And Daniel 4 and 5 are uh, the... Uh, comments from two despots, Belshazzar, um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and then Belshazzar, uh, who, who stand arrogant. This structure here is one of the clearest examples in the Bible of a chiasm, C-H-I-A-S-M, chiasm, comes from the Greek letter chi, A-B-A structure, and in the end it's a helpful memory tool for the ancient culture because you've only got to remember the first half. second half comes to you pretty easily. By the way, the window behind you is a chiasm. You've never noticed because you've never seen it during the daylight. But go up and have a look sometime. The two outer um, windows say the same thing. 
Second, last, uh, the second and the second last say the same thing. Get it during the daytime. The third and the third last say the same thing. And the middle panel says, and this is the gospel that was preached to you. It's 1 Peter 1, verses 24 to 25. That's a chiasm, and the book of Daniel is framed as such. So what do you do with this dream? Four medals. Uh, it's not the final story of humanity with, with kingdoms ruling and winning, the beasts ruling and winning. In the dream, a single little rock is cut out, but not by human hands. This is the activity of God in verse 34. That rock hits the feet of clay and the whole thing comes crashing down. The little rock, in this sort of chiasm, responds to the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. Now we'll get there. The Son of Man defeats the beastly kingdoms in the same way that the rock beats the four metals. And then the rock here in, in Daniel 2 grows to be a, a mountain. In other words, it's not top-heavy like the statue ready to topple, but rather a kingdom that is solid and stable and good. The dream, of course, is simple. After Babylon, head of gold, there'll be four kingdoms, and scholars argue about this, but what is it? After Babylon comes, and you know your history, don't you? Medes, Persians, Babylon, Medes, Persians, Greeks is one translation that puts this book and its application in the second century BC. Or how about this one? Tantalizingly, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greeks, and then in the time of the Romans. Of course, a little rock hits the base. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe this good news. Daniel basically prophesies the coming of Jesus Christ in verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure. We'll be able to explore this in chapters 4 and 5 in particular. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock that was cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. When Jesus said the kingdom of God was at hand, he's saying absolute power is coming and he is good. He is full of grace and mercy. Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. He was saying God had lost this world to sin and stubbornness, but he wants it back. He wants the whole thing. And that's why there's a call to repent because we are all complicit in this fallen world. We all in many ways could get caught up in Babylon and we're told to come out from her. The astrologer said, only the gods can reveal this and they don't live among humans. What happens, of course, when God decides to live among humans? When the king comes, Jesus lived among humans and his life shows us God's heart. Amen? I believe that power corrupts. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. But I'm just not sure that absolute... Power corrupts absolutely. Why? Never, ne never, never, never had it. By the way, I'm not arguing against boards, checks, balances, governments, rule of law, police. Nebuchadnezzar never had absolute power. God is the only one who has absolute power and he uses it to serve, to love. He uses it to lay down his life for others. Jesus said, for even the Son of Man, borrowing Daniel 7, even the Son of Man, talking about himself, 
Even he did not come to be served like Nebuchadnezzar, but rather to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus brings the kingdom of God. He is the little rock that will fill heaven and earth. But you get something here about speaking the truth to power. Um, Jesus spoke the truth to power. We'll come to that in a moment. He's the hero of the story, not you and me. But in Christ, you know, how do you live? Uh, you come up against power all the time in your particular workplaces as you serve in various courts uh, of, in Babylon. How do you do it? Um, how do you sing the songs of the Lord in a strange land? How do you do Mondays in Babylon? Well, here's a couple of things to write down if, if it helps. First, it'd be great to develop a reputation like Daniel did, live such lives among the pagans, Peter will eventually say. But I love how Arioch, in, in verse 25, says to the king, I found a man, I found someone among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. Leslie Newbigin said, we need to live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the only answer. That's a challenge. Second, uh, almost contrary to that, but not, not really, you don't have to be the hero. Look, I know Daniel has to have courage to go to the king, but I don't think he's being framed up here or elsewhere as a hero in any classic sense of that word. Heroes normally pile over the you know, parapet first, kill the enemy, uh, destroy the beast, you know, get the love interest, turn back and rule the kingdom uh, happily ever after. But I don't think Daniel's being framed up that way. He's just being framed up as a person who says, what, why did the king order that and can I go speak to him? Chuck Colson was a man in power before he landed in jail for a president who was about to be impeached. Chuck Colson wrote this after he gave his life to Christ. He said, it is, not, it is not what we do that matters, but what a sovereign God chooses to do through us. That's Daniel. God doesn't want our success. He wants us. He doesn't demand our achievements. He demands our obedience. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of paradox, where through the ugly defeat of the cross, a little rock, the Holy God is utterly glorified. The statue comes crashing down. Victory comes through defeat. Healing through brokenness. Finding self through losing self. Such is the kingdom of God. Third, Daniel chose wisdom and tact. So you've got to choose each day to choose wisdom and tact. Verse 14, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon... Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Some of you have this in spades, you're gifted. Some of you are like, okay, that's a learning project for me. Paul writes in a section about evangelism in Colossians 4, he writes to us, he says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity at work, neighborhood, home. Let your conversation be always full of grace, Season with salt, a little spice, 
so that you may know how to answer everyone. Develop a reputation. You don't have to be a hero. Choose wisdom and tact. Fourth, be a non-anxious presence. We'll say this a few times during the series. When Daniel found out he was about to have his head dropped off, just like Jesus before Herod and Pilate, he doesn't freak out. He remains composed. He knows he's God. He knows the future. Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Daniel goes and asks for time. No panic, just time, space to think, and of course to pray. In the Romans 14, verse 17, the Apostle Paul, in one of the few references to the kingdom of God in the epistles, the kingdom of God is a very strong gospel focus, but Paul writes this, the kingdom of God is not a matter of winning with a sword. No, doesn't even go there. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves the king, Christ, in this way, the true king, the absolute king, is pleasing to God. Righteousness, peace and joy. Daniel praying. Os Guinness wrote, uh, Jesus made clear that the kingdom of God is organic and not organisational. It's not made up of bishops and archbishops, even if we are. Guinness goes on, the kingdom grows like a seed and it works like leaven, secretly, invisibly, surprisingly, irresistibly, as each of us decide to follow the king. This king, not that king. Fifth, we need to pray in community, and there'll be an opportunity to do that in a song in a few moments' time. Verse 17, Daniel returned to his house, explained the matter to his friends. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Pray with each other. Sixth, know that he's got your future, so do not be afraid of him. Don't be afraid of the bully. Babylon is doomed, it was promised in Jeremiah 42 and declared in Revelation chapter 18. The new Jerusalem awaits you, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived of those who love him. Jeremiah wrote to the exiles in chapter 42, this is on page 14, he says, if you stay in this land, I'll build you up and not tear you down, I'll plant you and not uproot you, for I have relented concerning the disaster I've inflicted on you, I've dealt with the sin already. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. You won't soon. Don't be afraid of him, because I will save you and deliver you from his hands. I will show you compassion, so that he will have compassion on you and restore you to your land. We know this grace through Jesus Christ, our king. Finally, you've got to know in the end that we are not the Daniel of Daniel. <laughs> Jesus is the true and better Daniel, as he is the true and better Joseph. Jesus stood before another fickle prince of men, Pilate, and his bloodthirsty ally, Herod, and he chose to say nothing except answer questions directly and say that these powers had no ultimate power over him, that he chooses to lay down his life for others. This king, not, ne not, not the Nebuchadnezzar's, this king chose love. He chose to die in order to give life rather than to threaten and take it. 
He gives life. He doesn't suck it. So seek first the kingdom. The rock that becomes a mountain that fills the earth. Seek him. Jesus said, don't worry about what you eat, drink and wear. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Let's pray. Father, so much uh, goodness in a passage like this. So much power uh, as that you, you've inspired because you've given us this text to pay attention to and to listen to and to learn from. And we can see in Nebuchadnezzar uh, the sorts of power that left unchecked can destroy lives and bully and make people dance around them. But we reject that power. We reject that life. And we choose instead the life of Jesus Christ, his life for us. We seek him. We seek his kingdom First and foremost, the promise. We live in this promise and we take joy in it for Christ's sake. Settle our hearts. Help us to live well tomorrow. And we pray this in and for the name of our Messiah, Jesus. Amen.